Good afternoon, everybody. Liz, can you hear me okay? Excellent. The microphone works. Thank you. Um, We've got a very intriguing topic for this afternoon for the graveyard shift, straight after lunch and before afternoon tea-ish. Rob's a fellow of the faculty. He tells me it's too expensive to join the Australian Institute, but we'll convince him otherwise. Um, He's been here two and a half years with Jen Ree, having worked in the UK and travelled for 18 months, I think, you said, between those times. A luxury not many of us get. But maybe that allowed him to take a different perspective on what we do. Um, So if you didn't come to hear about Simple, you're in the wrong room. If you're here, thank you for coming. I'm thinking about reconfiguring the room and getting everybody to stand up and creating a circle. (laughs) Laugh, nervous laughter? No. Jenny, Jenny says no. Everybody else, nervous laughter? Jenny, no, no. no. Um, So, uh, just a reminder, you've got feedback. Um, You you won't get bored during this, but if you're playing with your app, there is a prize draw. Um, Go in and click prizes and... You can enter your name in the prize draw. Uh, We won't be offended if you do that during the session because it won't take you long. Um, We, the what else do I need to do? I think that's all. And I'll hand over to Rob to talk to you about Simple, which is actually very close to my heart as well. Okay, thank you. Um, See if I get the clicker working. Okay, that's good. Right. Um, so I've put some free chocolates out there, and I've noticed a few of you have helped yourself. There's some on the, on the right-hand side, your, your left, and some on the other side. Can you perhaps go and, um, if you haven't had one, go and grab a free chocolate? Um, some would be good if some went this side as well. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's part of the, you know, it's, it's, it's essential to be part of this room, <laughs> this meeting. <so. laughs> All right. Get out. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this is this is a little experiment which was probably going to go horrendously wrong. So we'll see. <laughs> so it went. Okay. So I wanted to wanted to have your thoughts as to how easy is it to choose. Um, the chocolates. How easy did you find it to choose a chocolate if you went on this side? And how easy was it if you went on that side? No, no, no. It doesn't matter. If, you went, if anyone went that side, how, e- how easy did you find that to choose a chocolate? Not easy. Are you, are you, are you, are you comfortable you got the right chocolate? <laughs> okay. Okay, it's going well. <laughs> okay. So I was hoping, right, that you would all say that on this side it was very easy to choose. Okay, because there's only two choices, and you know what they are. And on this side, um, feel free to grab yourself a chocolate from the left or, or the right. Which <laughs> and, um, so, and I was hoping that if you went this way, you actually... Um, found it a lot harder to choose a chocolate, um, unless you actually because all the chocolates have just got wrappers colours on, and they haven't got the names of what they are, so you don't actually know what you're buying, what you're getting, and when you got it, you you know if you if you're somebody who doesn't like chocolate with nuts, you get oh, get the chocolate and you have it and it's got a nut in it, it's like oh God, I've got 
got the wrong one. Do you know what I mean? So that's what I was hoping happened. Um, yeah, never mind. We'll, we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it, we didn't have a big enough sample. And uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, it, it's, 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 it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'll move on. So um, the, the agenda is going to be: it is first of all, is choice good for you? And then I'm going to look at some product complexity, uh, some consumer issues around choice. Um, then I'm going to look at look at simple products, and I'm going to look at some principles for simple products and some basic design principles. And then I'm going to quickly go on to an example of simple products. Now. Um, I've had to cut out a number of slides this morning because I was told I had far too many slides. Um, so the end bits are a lot shorter than they were in the original draft. So um, I'll be going through those a bit, uh, bit quickly. So, okay. so first of all, is choice good for you? Um, so the, the basic principle of insurance um, is that if insurance can be offered easily and with only a small administrative cost, then a risk-adverse person would be more worthwhile to take out the insurance because they have a small loss each time rather than have the potential large catastrophic loss. And that's the basis for, for insurance, right? Um, so, I mean, if that was the case, everybody would be buying insurance. Okay, so, um, but the difficulty is that we're not all rational people. So we're not all like Spock. I mean, I know we've got actors in this room, so there might be a few more Spocks um, than the normal room. Um, but no, we're not normally rational people, and we're more like Kirk, and we're totally irrational. And so we're, lo we're faced with lots of prejudices and biases, and, and those sort of influence what we do and how we make decisions. Okay? And generally, people don't really understand um, the likelihood or the seriousness of risk. They tend to overestimate small losses and they underestimate uh, the chance of a big loss, a uh, devastating event, uh, effect. And these sorts of things cause people not to buy insurance, and that's potentially not great for society. Um, so, so the, um, the two questions I wanted to ask really was, is choice good for you? And... Uh, what's the impact of having complexity and how does that make choice, uh, impact on choice? So um, I saw a, um, there was a paper which was done and they did uh, an experiment on uh, jams and this was done in, a, in the US in a, an upmarket's um, grocery store. Um, it's, um, it's, 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 it's got a reputation of having a wide range of selection of goods and um, they ran it on um, two subsequent weekends. There weren't any special weekends like public holidays or anything like that. And um, in the first weekend, um, somebody they had a tasting booth and someone had a choice of six jams. And in the second weekend, they had a choice of 24 jams. And they investigated a couple of things. First of all, they, um, they looked at how likely someone was to go over to that tasting booth and actually taste. And the second thing they did was they, they, followed, they gave everybody a $1 voucher to, if they wanted to bought a jam, that they could then go and buy that jam. So they then looked at how likely somebody was to follow up that tasting with buying. Okay? Um, so this is, um, so what, what happened was they, they did a couple of things just to um, remove some of the risks. So they, they removed what they uh, thought were the most popular flavours, which were strawberries and raspberries, because they, they, had, they didn't want to make it really obvious that there were only six. Um, they also um, 
they limited the choice. They, what they did was they got students to score all the jams by the, 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 um, what I thought was the most popular to the least popular. And they made sure that on the, when they had the six, they choose two which were poorly rated, two in the middle, and two which were well rated. So as to make sure it was a, a fairly even um, equivalent sort of uh, groupings. Okay? So um, this was the, uh, the initial results. So um, in the, the one with the limited choice, they both, uh, both weekends they had 368 people in the, in the stores. Um, they, I think they must have stopped once they'd got to the same number. And um, on the limited choice, there was uh, 242 people who encountered the booth. So um, basically the booth set up at the end of one aisle. So some people come in the store and then never get to that part. Others, they, they think oh, they walk past it or they can see it. So they, um, they had 242 saw it, on the other one 260. So similar sort of numbers. Um, with extensive um, choice, they had 145 who actually stopped and did a tasting. Okay, which was 60%, which is interesting. And when they had the smaller choice, they found 104 people stopped at the, at the booth, and that's a 40%. So it seemed to be that consumers were, who were exposed to more choice were more likely to be attracted to um, that choice. Okay? But then they followed up with how many purchased it, and they found that of the 104 of the limited choice, um, 31 went and bought. So they found 30% of those who actually tasted then went and bought. When they went to the extensive choice, it was only four. <laughs> right? Okay. Um, so it was only 3% of people then actually went on and bought. And they found that consumers who were exposed to more limited choice were more satisfied that they, that with their choice and they're more satisfied that they tasted, they had six there, they tasted two or three and they said, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that that's the one I want to buy. And they found that with the 24, they actually found that people didn't taste that many more when they actually, in the paper it says that they looked at how many tastings they did, and they didn't taste that many more, but they found that people were unsure whether that really was the one they wanted, right? Um, so those who are exposed to um, a more limited choice are more likely then to buy, which is quite an interesting um, result. Um, and more generally what they found is that if there's a limited choice, um, it increases... Um, the choice that um, someone feels that the choice they made is good um, and um, they've done other tests where they've um, reduced the those previous tests done before where they, they found that um, when they only had two choices and they found that actually having a wider choice was more beneficial because people um, I think when you go from two choices people felt that the bigger choice was better but there's, there's a tipping point where um, you can get to six, eight that they feel that actually I, I'm getting a really good choice and I can buy so um, so the other thing they found though is that um, in other circumstances choice is good okay? so imagine um, if you're going to a, a new restaurant and you know it's a new uh, I don't know, a new, uh, new Thai restaurant right, down the road and um, you're sitting there thinking beforehand like I want, I want a Thai green curry for my, my dinner right that's what I want. So you go to the restaurant and it's got a choice. It's got pages and pages of choices. But I can actually, I already know what I want beforehand. Right? So to actually be able to find it on that list is good. So when you actually know what you want, actually having the wide range of choice is good for you. But when you don't know, it's not good for you. Okay? Um, so... Um, 
yeah, so, um, so his choice is good is um, where you know what you want. His choice is good where you're not sure. Um, they talk about something called choice overload, that you, you have this, what they call a decision conflict situation, where you're not really sure about whether you're buying the right thing or not. And that means that people, um, they go from a situation of, I feel like I've got the optimal solution, my optimal choice. They think I've got something which is satisfactory, and they're not really sure whether that's the best choice there for them. There's also, um, when I was writing this, there was an article came out from Choice, which says that uh, three in five Australians find Choice makes it harder to decide. Um, the actual article talks about a shopper who was buying a phone and found that there's a, 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 all kinds of different features on different phones and um, different prices, and they just felt completely confused as to what they were buying and whether they were getting a good value or not. Um, and you know, this, this is something which uh, Choice highlighted also, that, um, that people are finding it really hard um, to, to make decisions. So does this apply to insurance? So um, in the U.S., um, they have um, they, they find that well they got um, well they had it's stopped now they had about Obamacare, um, the Affordable Care Act, and um, so in they, everybody there had to buy health insurance, and um, there was lots and lots there's lots of choices in that market uh, around the amount of what was called deductibles or effectively excesses. Um, there are lots of different excesses by different types of conditions, um, and um, generally, what the uh, you know, health insurance there is, you know, it's, it's generally complicated, probably a little bit boring. It's not what the thing people want to do, but they're, they're having to do it. Um, but it, but it's important for them to do it, and um, it's quite a um, there's quite a few papers out there looking at choice. Um, in insurance um, on the um, Affordable Care Act and this was one particular one this one they um, analysed health insurance plan choice from over 20,000 employees of a company and they had a choice of 48 different plans they were all by the same insurer so they weren't um, they weren't choosing brands and the only differences really in the plans were the amount of deductibles the, the excesses and the premiums they paid and when they did the analysis of the 20,000 employees, they found that 61% of people chose a plan which wasn't the best solution for them, right? Because they just weren't sure what they were buying. Um, and they found that also people typically paid 41% more than they really needed to uh, for the amount of cover which was appropriate for them. Um, so, um, yeah, it does look like complexity does um, exist um, in insurance. So I'm, I'm next I'm going to have a quick look through some product complexity. So uh, Choice um, also um, published a report where they, they called for a crackdown on what they felt was unreasonable, lengthy uh, consumer contracts. And they highlighted um, the consumer contract for Kindle e-reader, which they said was uh, 73,000 words. They said it took nine hours to read, um, which is uh, longer than Hamlet and Macbeth together. Um, and um, yeah, and they, they sorry. At least it doesn't waste. Paper. At least it doesn't waste paper. Yeah, it's environmentally friendly. Yeah. Yes, and they said that generally that insurance uh, that contracts were getting longer and longer, and it was making it um, you know people just weren't reading them, just ticking a box. And I'm sure we've all been there all the time when we we just tick the terms and conditions without even reading them, without even opening them. So I know I do regularly. So, um, 
So uh, there was an, uh, another article, which is a paper which, uh, if you've not read this, I'd, I'd really suggest reading this because it's quite an interesting paper. It's done by the Con- Insurance Council of Australia. They did some research on the general insurance product disclosures. Um, and there's lots of um, useful information in there. There's two bits I'm, I'm going to quickly pull out just to, to highlight something. So the first bit was they um, asked people on their different products um, how well they thought they understood their products. Okay, so um, you found about 20% of people felt they were completely confident in their product, and you saw about another 60% felt they were, they, they were mostly confident in their product. So most people felt they, they knew what they were buying. Okay? Um, they also um, then did some tests of um, certain scenarios in their products, what might happen, and just to under, try, try and understand people's real understanding of their products. And you'll see um, that when you get down to some of the other um, things at the bottom that you know, typically less than 20 people, 20% of people actually understood what their products did. Um, so you know, had that 80% of people who were pretty confident they, they knew what they were buying. And in fact, even the top one, um, you know, duty of disclosure, only 65% understood actually what that meant, which was the, you know, the most, that was the most common thing people understood. But um, generally it shows that people have a belief they understood, but they, they really didn't understand what they were buying. There's also um, uh, there was an article, some research done in the UK. Uh, this was done by uh, Canada Life, or Sun Life Canada, and um, they did some research which showed that people read on average only 15% of their insurance documents. Um, and um, they also went on to have a look at the the length of the insurance documents and how hard they were to read. Um, Part of that was um, they did something which was looking at the readability called uh, the flesh reading ease scale. And um, this is fa- something that's fairly easy to do. If you've got a, a Word document at any time, find something you can just um, you can do a, a, a grammar check on it and at the end it comes up, um, with, you can get the readability scale. Um, and it's really interesting to do. And um, so you, um, it, it scores uh, the readability from 90 all the way down to 0 to 30, which is very difficult. And it also scores it in what sort of what they call is a grade level. So how um, how much education you require to be actually they think to be able to understand it. Okay. So I had a look at a couple of our, our products just to see how they they stack up. Um, so this is a, a retail product. Um, so this had, uh, this is quite a short one, this had only 3,000 words in it. Um, and um, it has a readability scale of 0 to 29. Actually, readability scale eases 23, this was 24%. Um, it has a, a, a grade scale of 15. Um, I think 15 is going to be, I think is degree level, sort of. Um, you've got to have a, a, a degree to be able to understand the policy documents. Um, so that, yeah, really um, what our consumers need. Um, I also looked at a, a super plan to have a look at how they, how they were. Because um, at, at least with um, a retail plan, you might have an advisor there who, who might be able to help you. Um, with a super plan, you, you often don't. Um, so this one, it had 16,000 words. It was a bit bigger. Um, this was slightly better, 30 to 49, difficult scale. And the, the grade scale was, was 14. So seeing again, it's still, still sort of first year degree or that sort of level of education which is required to be able to understand um, the quality of um, the, what we put out there in writing. So, um, yeah, I, I think this causes some issues. Um, I think it's very difficult 
when you read some of them, it's very difficult to actually write them. So, um, but um, I'm sure most of us have been in meetings where you're sitting there with colleagues trying to understand if the policy wording pays out or not. Um, and you know, if we're sitting there in meetings trying to do that, that's that's just not good. How, how on earth is the consumer supposed to understand that? So, okay. Um, so, so simple products. I'm going to um, talk to you a bit about simple products. There was um, a review done in the UK uh, in 2012 called the Sargent Review, and um, this looked at um, this whole issue because they found that there was um, they felt there was issues with um, products being too complex and people being put off, and um, they had a premise that uh, simple processes and products um, would allow um, straightforward, um, straight purchasing decisions, and they felt that that would benefit consumer trust, that consumers would know what they buy, um, and it would meet, most, uh, meet the consumer needs, and it would aid consumers and society because more people would be buying insurance, which is ultimately what we want. Um, they identified um, a number of issues. They felt that, um, as I've been explaining, that the, the challenge of making good decisions in a complicated market uh, with a wide range of products and different prices and different product features was, was very difficult for, for them to understand. And they also found that even where there were simple products in that market, that people couldn't identify them because there's just so many different products out there. You, they couldn't identify that that actually is quite a simple product to, to buy. It wasn't very well labelled and, and um, wasn't that easy to, to, to buy. So. And they identified uh, a process uh, as to how this had all happened. And this is probably, this is very similar to hit to this market. And it basically is, it was all driven by competition. So you, you have... Um, products out there in the market uh, there's trying to be comp competition so people try to offer new products and new services so they make the product slightly more complicated they add a new feature on it um, and this differentiates the product um, and, and then it causes a bit of confusion by the con consumer because it's a bit more complicated and causes a bit of lack of interest so sales slow down a little bit so because sales slow down you want a bit more competition so I, I, I put another product feature on I put another term on and yeah, and then what happens is you know I've differentiate my product again. It's a bit more confusing. Consumers are a bit more you know, put off to buying it. And they don't know what they're buying again, and sales slow down a bit. And they found this they found this cycle had been going on um, in in the market. And I think I, I can I can I can see that happening happens here, and in, in most mature markets, this sort of happens. So um, they identified. Um, uh, what they thought were, were um, a number of principles for simple products. They were not just aiming at um, um, protection products, they were also looking at bank products as well. So uh, a couple of these uh, relate probably directly to banking products, but um, it's useful just to see um, what, what the principles they came up with. So they, they thought a simple product should just have essential product features only. They should be, it should be clear, straightforward, it should use standardized language in the product, so every product would use the same words, same language. It's something we don't get here. You know, we have deferred periods and waiting periods and stand-down periods and all kinds of different things with the same things. And someone mentioned before, you have pre-existing conditions and you have link, uh, limited conditions and new member conditions, and for the, which are the same things, effectively. Um, they talked about having standardized product names so that uh, it was quite common, clear what it was. Um, here... 
We don't have standardized product names. We have income protection and group salary continuance. And we have trauma and critical illness in the market. Um, and they thought there should be a, a number of reasonable conditions, options, and exclusions, but not too many. Um, they thought that it, ideally, I think they preferred not to have any, but um, they felt that maybe to offer the products that it was necessary to have a couple. Um, they wanted a straightforward uh, purchasing process. Um, they wanted a, a clear pricing and return uh, structure. So that was mainly focused towards uh, investment products, where it was quite, I mean, quite clear as to how much you got charged and, and what the returns were. Uh, they wanted any fees and charges to be transparent, uh, reasonable, and predictable. Um, and they wanted um, that the consumer was clearly informed of any changes which was made to their products, and they got regular updates as well to those products. Um, so these were a number of principles that the, 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 um, they felt were important to try and develop simple products. Um, they actually developed two products. They developed a banking product and developed a protection product, um, and takeoff had been uh, really slow. Um, the first um, uh, simple product was um, on the insurance side was from Barclays Bank. They did um, a simple product, got a kite mark, and um, so that's their launch. It was in uh, 2014, August 2014, and it got a review um, in one of the advisor press things. Um, and this is just a couple of comments. They said that simplicity is generally a good thing. So adding simplicity must be even better, right? Uh, well, not exactly. If your car manufacturer took out all the complex computer management in your car, it would certainly be simpler, but it would also be slower, use more fuel, and be less safe. And, and they sort of just had a go at it, right? And um, I think that put off a few other people developing. And for me, that misses, completely misses the point, right? For me, something simple in the car is where, where the car... I mean, I've got, auto, if I've got automatic gears instead of a manual, right? So something simple is that it will park itself for me, or it will have automatic braking, or it will tell me I'm, I've got, a, it, will, it will beep at me when I'm getting too close to, a, too close to something when I'm going to hit, right? Those are, you know, that makes life simple for me. Is that they're more complicated in the car. It doesn't matter, you know, it's more complicated behind it, but it's designed for the consumer and it's simple for the consumer. So, um, for me, this. This is completely missed the point, right? Right? And um, yeah, actually, I, I want a car with all of those bits in because I want it. To, I want it to be easier, right? So anyway, I thought it was a really bad analogy. Anyway, um, the Association of British Insurers um, early this year decided to pull out of simple products. I think they um, heavily influenced by the, the um, feedback from advisors because um, advisors didn't really want it. Um, they, I think they like complexity because they like to, to there's the need for having advice um, and um, they also found it quite difficult to get agreement on trying to do a income protection product because people were always concerned about um, what happens if I, if I have a standard product and it's a 90 day wait and the person should have only had uh, you know, a, a 30 day wait Am I, is that mis-selling because the simple product is, is, is simplified, it's, it's simplified its benefits and the, that's what was being brought up by um, advisors all the time is to you can't sell a simple product because people's lives are a lot more complicated than that um, 
And I think that's interesting in this market where we have uh, lots of super plans and we have default covers, you know, which are set you know, not, for, not really at the individual, they're set at a group level. So, as to, so it's, it's quite interesting how we have a market which seems to have taken that on and accepted that. And, and, and in that market, they, they um, felt that it, they couldn't offer, they couldn't get agreement on what um, a standard benefit, a simple product would look like. And they said that, um, so there's this concern about mis- misadvice and um, they just, the ABI decided to focus some work on, um, on other areas which they felt would be a consumer benefit rather than trying to continue down this, this road. Um, so can good design make something simpler? Um, so um, there's a designer who... Um, Called Dieter Rams. He is um, he as um, head of design in Braun um, Electronics for 30, 40 years, and he designed. Um, he got lots of awards. He's been very influential. He's considered one of the um, most important designers of the 20th century, and um, he's um, influenced um, Apple a lot and um, in lots of these things. Lots of the things that they can show comparisons between things, Apple things and his products and how they look identical, um, which is, is quite interesting. Um, anyway, he said um, ten principles for good design. Um, so he felt that. Um, so these are things that I thought are quite useful to think about if you're trying to design a, a product and um, to see how your product matches up against these principles. So his first principle is that it's got to be innovative, um, which is, I think, historically in insurance that was quite quite difficult. I think now with a lot of insure tech coming along um, and lots of new solutions coming along, I think there's quite a lot of um, people using those sorts of um, looking at how they can use um, those sorts of things to, to make a product more innovative. Um, they, he said that he's, um, um, you need to make a product useful. Uh, and I guess that's one of the problems we face in life insurance when we, have, uh, we pay out life cover. Um, hope, and it's you know, the only time often a, a policyholder gets anything from us is either they get told they've got a, a big increase in their premiums or they have a horrible event such as they, they die and they've got a claim. And that's not always a nice, easy process either. So it, it's not a particularly... It's not really a particularly pleasant experience sometimes. It's not a particularly useful experience. I don't see the value in it. Um, I think some of these things which are coming along around um, putting health related to insurance, I think, sort of moves, moves to a bit more towards that. Um, but you could say that doesn't keep it simple. It's got to look at aesthetic. Um, so a good example here is if you, if you nowadays you buy something electronic um, and you, you, you know, say you buy an iPhone or you buy a, a, a laptop, sometimes they're all really nicely packaged. And you know, you, before years ago, you used to get the package and you used to just throw it away because it was horrible. Now you actually keep that package because it fits everything perfectly and well. So it's, it just looks really good. Um, it's got to make a product understandable. Um, so it's thinking about when you're designing something is um, does somebody know exactly what that does without having to think about it and you can think there's lots of things where you can think about it's, it's obvious as to how to use something that actually have, having to go to an instruction manual to see what it is um, and I'm not quite sure our products are quite like that yet um, unobtrusive means there's no extra added bits on um, I'm not sure unnecessary honest so you don't make false claims so um, I wonder about a heart attack definition perhaps those sorts of things is that really honest 
um, or some of our critical illnesses really honest or you know we're saying it does this when you know there's 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 actual words underneath which says actually it doesn't quite do that so um, being honest is one thing it's long lasting so it doesn't really need to change Um, thorough down to the last detail Um, there's um, a great example I'm aware of which is that um, all of Apple's stores um, whether it's their floors or the front they're all in a grey looking tile that um, isn't a tile it's actually stone from my quarry near Florence in Italy and they bought the, they bought the quarry and so they actually cut the stone all from the same place so every single tile um, in every Apple store is identical right? which is that, that is just crazy I think that Steve Jobs was a bit like that so if you saw if you ever saw the, the film Jobs then there was stuff like that all the time where it was he was yeah over the top in some of this thoroughness um, environmentally friendly so we're not producing waste unnecessarily um, and also it talks about as little design as possible so for me a great example of this is the, is the Google page um, you've got a page which says Google it's got a search box you put it in and, and you hit return and you get what you want I mean that's it, you don't need anything else right so simple products um, I'm only going to give you one example there are numerous examples out there um, this is probably um, one you, most of you might be aware of. Um, it's in South Africa. It's called Zameli. Um, and um, it was introduced in South Africa to reach low-income um, population. And um, it was basically there was a, uh, a low level of insurance uh, among um, low-income black population generally. And they created two products. One was called Manzani, Manzani, Manz- Man's, I don't know. Anyway, <coughs> I apologise. Uh, and and Zameli for the life insurance. And these products were launched in 2006-7. And uh, the Zameli product, it had uh, standardised policy terms. Every policy had identical terms. Um, they had um, minimum um, st- standard documentation. They were given maximum prices they could charge. They had m- uh, maximum amounts of cover. They were uh, what they could charge. Initially, they had a number of products. They had a funeral cover, um, they had family funeral cover, types, different types of funeral cover, and they had uh, life cover as well. So the typical funeral cover, its only exclusion was suicide in the first two years, um, and it had a temporary exclusion for natural causes in the first six months to, to deal with um, some anti-selection. The maximum benefit was about 20,000 rand, which I th- I'm guessing is about $2,000, something like that. Um, the age of entry was um, 14 to 18 it was what you required and you had to offer it up to 65 so um, you could offer it further but the requirements was you had to offer it um, up to 65 and then they set maximum prices for that by age bands okay? um, there were 13 companies in South Africa who were offering the last, last on you and um, the development after that was what was called near equivalent products. So um, they had this, uh, the, the basic products and then they started doing products which also were maybe slightly more feature rich, maybe slightly larger cases. But it sort of developed a new, another market as well into um, this product. And, and for me, this is very similar to the idea of uh, the no, no interest loans, which uh, Rene was um, discussing um, earlier and, and I think it would be really interesting those sort of things
Um, so in summary, how am I doing for time? Doing well. Doing well. Yeah. <laughs> My alarm's about to go off. Oh, really? Okay. So in summary, um, I think insurance is complex, um, and I think complexity puts consumers off. I think, I think you think you find that a lot of people feel they have to go to an advisor because it's too complicated otherwise. Um, um, I've got a, there's a number of um, guidelines which were produced uh, in the UK for what they felt uh, were the essential features of a, of a simple product. Um, and um, there was a number of uh, guidelines around what to, things to think about and to, and to check your product against um, for um, if you're designing a new product, just to have a think about how, how they match up. Okay. Okay. Thank you. That's uh, all I've got. Standing? Yeah, I was yeah. standing. Doesn't need an introduction, Andrew. Well <laughs> First question. State, please state your name, Andrew Linfoot. Andrew Linfoot, yeah, Munich well Re. Um, and uh, questions or comments, please, not just questions. Thanks. Um, thank you, Robert. It's a very timely paper. I'm disappointed that there's not a much bigger crowd clamouring to get into this room. Um, I, I would do what you're saying ten times fold. I think as an industry we're completely in, in heading for disaster with products that are, have run away from us. We can't control them. The claims are, are volatile and causing you know, banks to sell their insurance businesses because they can't get a return that they want. I don't think we're meeting customers' needs. We're getting media threats. We're getting regulators on us. We're getting governments. We've lost the trust of governments. Need, need I go on? Um, we've tried for the last few years to dial back some of the things that, that we you know, caused. I think as reinsurers, um, we have a, a role to play in this, and, and it costs us market share. I know that, and uh, I know then why insurers don't take the step to take a, a drastic action. But we can't collude and all do it at the same time. Um, we're building up these legacy problems. They're not getting any better. Um, I'm, as I said to my colleague last night, if I didn't think insurance was such an important product, I wouldn't work in this industry. You know, if, if I worked in the gambling industry and I had these problems, I could easily walk away. It wouldn't matter. But insurance is such a critical product for our society and, and, and customers that we have to solve it. But, God, it's hard. <laughs> um, that was my comment. My question is, is how do we do that? How do we, how do we stop selling large lump sum TPD? How do we stop selling DI products with high replacement ratios, unintended high replacement ratios? How do we stop selling products that cover mental health for what was that description? Melancholic depression, not you know, serious clinical depression. I, I don't know the answers, but I'd, I'd love to join with you in, in the fight to improve sustainability uh, and the future of our industry. <laughs> um, I think that uh, you've got to be realistic in it, and I, I think that um, I think I've seen one company try something here a bit different. Um, I don't think they've necessarily been massively successful. But I think you, the difficulty is that it's, it's, not, a, it's not something you can do quick, quick fix. It's almost like you need some people 
at a high level to be have the have the, be committed to say actually I'm going to, to try this. Right? I'm going to keep my current product, but I'm going to try something a bit simpler. So that if an advisor is out there, or somebody comes in online, or somebody is an advisor who's got somebody who they don't really want to give advice to because perhaps they can't afford to anymore, that perhaps they say, well, actually, I can direct you. Like, have you looked at this product over here? And you know, maybe there's an opportunity coming up for that. And I think if we if people try and do that, they're not going to get rid of their existing products, but maybe at least they maybe can think about doing something simpler as well that they can um, sell alongside, alongside it to, you know, as a, a stepping stone for people who can't understand, understand that product and something easier for someone to, to feel comfortable that actually they've got something good. Um, and I think that might help. And then maybe, maybe it grow the market as well, which should be good. Yeah, uh, Phil Stott. Yeah, that's better. Um, I come from a. Uh, th thank you very much for, for this. A very insightful, and I think very necessary to hear, Andrew. I come from a different perspective. I've been in life insurance for 30 years, but I've hardly done any pricing work in the last uh, 20 years. What I do have experience, though, is in modelling. And I want to share some insights cross disciplinary there, because I think modelling is. Uh, modelling has some very similarities to pricing, because. When you're pricing a product, the purpose, the purpose of insurance is to indemnify. That's, what, that's the state of it, to indemnify the, the insurer against certain contingencies. But, of course, you can't literally indemnify them because it's such, so complicated. So your product design is there to actually simplify reality to say, if we meet certain conditions, we will approximately be meeting their needs. Now, the problem we have... So that's the same problem we have with modelling insurance liabilities at the other end. You, know, you, you can't actually reproduce reality exactly, so you've got to simplify reality to create a model that you can actually work with. Now, I think in modelling, the problem that I encounter all the time is that people simplify the wrong things. The purpose of a model is it's got to be both art and science. Science is obvious, but the art is in designing a model which is so simple that, it, that you simplify all of the things which aren't really that important so I use the analogy that, you know, if you're trying to define the difference between male and female, then a figure with a circle and a triangle and two legs is a perfectly good model of a female if your purpose is to put it on a, a lavatory door and say which is male and which is female. But if your purpose is, you know, to give anatomy lessons, then that's not a very satisfactory model. So, the, you know what I'm saying, the, 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 the simple... The, the key to designing a good model is to simplify the real things. And I think the problem we have in product design, getting back to the, the crucial issue, is that we have not simplified the things which are actually important to the customer. So you go and make your analogy with heart attack. You know, the customer wants to be indemnified against a serious heart attack. What do we do? We put in a nice complicated medical definition, which 20 years ago approximated a serious heart attack. But nowadays, it does nothing of the kind. It excludes certain types of heart attacks which really need to be indemnified, and it gives people, other people a windfall benefit uh, because it covers... So we need to change our perspective, I think, in how we define things, maybe stop having the lawyers so much involved in say, because they want to say it's got to be defined you know, in technical excellence down to the, crossing every... I and dotting every T, and develop a more heuristic, holistic approach, maybe having a definition which says, you know, um, which defines it in terms of severity of impact, 
rather than you know purists you know in, in definition they start thinking in a diff, outside the diff, outside the box in a different way of thinking about it. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you want to stop? No. <laughs> <laughs> yep. uh, Leon from Covermore Travel Insurance. Um, I just wanted to call out that in my organisation we've got 98 PDSs. The last time I counted, so. And I'm sure no one, um, not many people here have heard of Covermore Travel Insurance. Um, the other thing was, um, thank you very much for your very fascinating presentation. I think a great companion presentation was done by Elizabeth from EY yesterday. She talked about consumer focus. So your example of the car really resonated with me. It's not about just making it simpler. It needs to do what the customers want to do. Yeah. Um, I think customers need heuristics as well. So just um, rule of thumbs that they could rely on when they see a lot of choice because choice creates decision points. Decision points make them think critically, so it, it's not easy for them. So there was a study done by the Rotman um, School of Management. The professor went into a Chinese restaurant, and the menu had like over 100 different options, and the owner said only eight are the most popular, and that is what gets sold. Um, why does that happen? Now, all the choices are there because there's still meeting demand out there. There are still customers who will walk in who want sweet and chili with cashew nuts, with basil. Um, but the thing is, um, the restaurant, what, that, what they were missing was the fact that they needed to simplify it. So what they could have done was, you know, rice, um, rice noodle or Hokkien noodles times uh, chicken, beef or prawn times. So you've got to create something that the customers can um, uh, easily choose from. And um, another travel insurance perspective is um, modularization of products is getting really popular, but I think there's a tipping point there as well because if you make it too modularized, people are not going to have the patience to pick and choose exactly what they want. So, yeah, just food for thought. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd say one of the problems we have in the life insurance is that we have a product which tries to meet, um, meet the needs of everybody in one product. Um, so, for instance, in our uh, life insurance products, we'll have um, lots of we'll have personal protection and we'll have business protection all written up in the same product, and we'll have options for personal and business, which are you know, they only need one. They don't need you know. So it's, you should have separate products, and you'll also get that um, a policy document will have all the benefits in, in at the same time. They have life and, and and trauma and TPD and. And uh, they have TB uh, IP and IP optimal, and they have a whole heap of it. And a lot of consumers have only got one one product or two. You know, they don't need to read all the 250 pages. So I think we we need to get a little bit smarter in in how we do our PDSs. I think you know we might need to think about can we do product documents which are specific to that person. Um, which, you know, it's a bit of a bit of a task, but it might make things a little bit easier. So. Jenny Sparks. Um, I think there's two problems here. One is the one you pointed out that people feel that if they're going to put the consumer at the heart of everything, they need to design something that's going to suit every single consumer, which is just not possible. The other one is the one of competition, which you highlighted up front, that there's this feeling, well, if we're all doing exactly the same thing, how can I differentiate myself? I think it's very interesting that in a country like Japan, um, basically insurance is savings products, but when you look at protection, funeral cover sells very, very well, 
and that's what low income needs, but it's also in a country where funerals are expensive, that's what they need. Probably need some wedding insurance cover for parents, um, which isn't out there yet, but they're becoming increasingly expensive. On trauma, you either buy a cancer product or you buy a product that covers stroke, heart attack, cancer. Any product that sells more than that or covers more than that isn't selling. Now, is there competition? Yes. Why? I'm not really sure. But maybe if we start thinking more about differentiating on service and having a simpler product, uh, we might get more to the core of what we're really here about. Hi, Rachel Paper from Aon. Um, thank you for keeping that broad as well. I'm actually from the super industry, not from insurance. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting to see that looking at the disclosure statement from super was no better. Um, and we're in a position where we've got a lot of tax change, a lot of potential for new products in the post-retirement space because of the changes in legislation. And I wonder if there's a way that this information could be disseminated somehow to the government so they can understand the impact that they're having in terms of when they put in the tax changes that they put in and all those kind of things that just does it for the budget and everything. The actual impact on the industry is horrific when it comes down to actually making simple products and, and the real need for simple products. Do you think there's a way of getting that done? Um, yeah, well, I, wouldn't have th I would have thought that it was something that the Institute could have considered or the FSC could have considered in feedback, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I must admit, what I'll, what I'll say about super plans is that um, having had a look at them, some of them are incredibly complicated because they have all kinds of different tiers of members um, from all different types of years and stuff, and, and they're all put into the one policy document. It's incredibly complicated sometimes to figure out um, uh, exactly what's going on with some of those benefits. It's, I, I do wonder whether it would be easier to split it up. Um, but uh, but it's, I mean, people like to put it all in one document, which is just really hard to read. That's if you can actually find the policy document on the website. Sometimes you can't even find those. So. Almost saved by the bell. Um, so thank you, everybody, for discussion as opposed to questions. So I think actually it's nice. One aspect of having a small group is that you can have a little more discussion rather than questions that the presenter is expected to answer. I, I'd go back to what Andrew said and reflecting, I think, what Rob's message is. We're all responsible for this and it's not easy, but um, we somehow have to get across it. Uh, I find it interesting that when at least the insurance industry, but I think the super industry, talks about product development what we, and product pricing, what we really mean is reviewing the PDS and repricing. We don't actually mean going out and finding what customer needs are, checking suitability and then developing products to meet needs. ASIC is clearly going down that direction and saying every product you have, prove why it's suitable to a customer. And there are tools. You've highlighted some of the tools. So, so thanks very much, Rob. Join me in thanking Rob, and we'll give him a second. What we're going to do.